This morning we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 32. Um, And in the church Bibles, that can be found on page 35. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to? And where are you going? And who owns all of these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, the two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Well, if you're anything like me, and I know it's presumptuous, isn't it, to say if you're like me, but um, if you are anything like me, you may look back at who you were three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, with a degree of embarrassment. You may think, I can't believe that I was like that. Like, I can't believe, why did I do those things? Why did I think those things? Why did I wear those things? And for some of us, it's a recurring pattern. Every few years, we look back at who we were a few years earlier and kind of cringe. And the bad news is, guys, you'll probably be doing that in a few years about yourself now. You are cringeworthy to your future self. Just bear that in mind today. Now, you may not be as self-critical as I am. You may have seen the past you as a kind of necessary version of yourself that had to happen in order to get to the person you are today, a necessary step along the way to maturity. But however you view your past and however you feel the process of living has gone, what it does show is that all of us are on a quest to maturity. We all want to grow. We all want to become wiser. We want to become more comfortable in our own skin. We want to be more grounded. And we offer ourselves various means of becoming more grounded and ways to develop and grow. We see education sometimes as a key means of growth. Job opportunities, relationships, we see other people as a great means of us growing and and developing. Even things like therapy. I recently listened to a podcast that was advertising um, a mental health service called BetterHelp. And part of the tagline was that BetterHelp can guide us and help us be our true selves. And these are all helpful things. And it's interesting, then, coming to this story of Jacob in Genesis, because Jacob is someone who is growing. He has grown. We've been in this series for about eight weeks, and we've followed Jacob's life all the way um, from his birth, and we've seen him increasingly become more mature. He started as a fairly self-centered manipulator to someone who, though he's still flawed, kind of has increasing virtue He's a bit more spiritually switched on than he used to be. You could say, in some sense, that he's becoming his best self. But today's passage marks an important moment in Jacob's life, a huge moment of growth. This this particular passage, this part of his story is pivotal for him. He even changes his name, which means a change of identity. His self-understanding changes. And this comes through a crisis moment. And so as we look at Jacob's life, it kind of provides a bit of a test case, a test case for how it is that God chooses to grow us, to help us mature. What is it that God says is necessary for our growth? And as we look at this crisis moment for Jacob, 
We will learn the methods that Jesus uses to grow us. So let's have a look at this passage together. First point I want to make is this. We will all wrestle with God. We will all wrestle with God. So the story begins as Jacob is traveling home. He's been in exile, you could say, for about 20 years. He'd run away from home to his uncle Laban's, hundreds of miles away. And since that time when he's been away, he's gathered a big family, lots of children, a couple of wives, and he journeys back home after all these years. And as he comes back to his homeland, it says in verse 1 and 2, if you look down, that he has this supernatural encounter. He meets with angels. And not much is said about this in the passage, but it is a reminder of when Jacob had um, gone to Bethel and seen angels there. And anyway, he, he has this vision of angels. Whatever it was like, he is awed by it. He says, surely this is the camp of God. And it's interesting, as he's traveling to this back home, to the promised land, the land of his fathers, the fact that he meets angels, it's kind of like a, a precursor. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. Jacob is going to have a supernatural encounter here. Anyway, he returns back, and he is therefore closer to where his brother Esau is in the land of Seir. And you'll remember at the beginning of the story that Jacob and Esau have had a huge conflict. And Esau has actually vowed to kill Jacob because Jacob had deceived him. He'd stolen Esau's blessing. And Esau was furious. And that was the reason Jacob had to run away in the first place, for fear of his life. And so Jacob has had this looming threat on his shoulders for years. And yet now he returns home. And notice he sends word to Esau. He makes the first move. He takes initiative. He reaches out. And he sends messengers to his brother with this message. Verse 4, your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Notice the language. Your servant, he calls himself. You are the Lord, he refers to Esau. Jacob wants to reconcile. It's quite humble of him, actually. So there's good intention. He hopes that he might be able to reconcile with his brother. But when he hears word about how what Esau's going to do next, it's very ominous. It says verse 6, so Esau doesn't send back a message to Jacob. Instead, all Jacob hears is that Esau is coming to him with a group of 400 men. That is the size of a militia. It's threatening. And what's Jacob's response? Verse 7, it says he had great fear and distress. Jacob's terrified. Why? Because he and his family might be about to be massacred by his brother. So, in true Jacob style, he gets to work. He splits up his entourage into two. The idea is if Esau comes and captures one of them, maybe the other, others might be able to get away. And then in verse 9, we have this remarkable prayer. Look at it. This is the longest prayer in Genesis and it kind of shows how far Esau, um, Jacob has come spiritually. So it says in verse 10, 
I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Isn't that interesting? I'm unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness. You know, back in the old days, we never got the sense that Jacob had any kind of spiritual sense at all. He tends to just do his own thing, take matters into his own hands. And yet here he recognizes that it's God who's helped him and provided for him. He even says, I'm unworthy. He knows his unworthiness before this God. A lot's changed in the years since he left his home. The core of his prayer is in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mother's and their children. And yet, even as he prays this to the Lord, he does like many godly people in the Bible do, he remembers and restates God's promises. Look at verse 12. You have said, I will surely make you prosper. It's a great prayer. It's a really good prayer. And then verse 13, he gets to work again. He pulls together this extraordinary gift for his brother to kind of win him over. Hundreds of sheep and camels and goats I mean, this is really lavish. I mean, in the, term, in, the, in the culture of the day, this would be kind of more than an entire town would give to a visiting dignitary. He's gone over the top with all of um, these flocks that he's sending to Esau. And he sends them on in groups to kind of win Esau over. It says, verse 20, for Jacob thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. That's the hope. And then verse 22, night falls. Jacob will see Esau the next day. He sends everyone, his flocks, his family, everyone across the river, and he is left alone. He spends what could be his final night alone, away from his family. Why is that? Maybe it's just to think. Maybe it's just to pray. We don't know. But can you imagine what must have been going through his mind in those moments? Jacob's life, it had been marked with struggle all of his life. But when he got into trouble, he could often run away. He could deal with things his own way. He was quite nimble. But it's different now. He's got a family. And they are implicated in his mess. He can't just run away and they are vulnerable. They may have to pay the price for his own huge mistakes. That must have been a big burden to carry that evening. And it's at this point that God fights him. Do you see that? Verse 24, it's almost casual, isn't it? As Jacob is left alone, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Oh yeah, that, that normally happens. Great. What's, what's happened there? We don't know. It's mysterious. But this figure in the dark comes and physically fights with Jacob. In verse 30, Jacob will identify this man as God himself, the Lord seemingly revealing himself as a human being. But just, you know, think about this. Jacob is as vulnerable as he could be, and God comes and attacks him. You've got to feel for Jacob at this point, I think. The reason he's come back home in the first place is because God has told him to. It's in his prayer, verse 9. Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country, and your relatives. He's just obeying what God's told him to do. And he's come back and he's trying to make things right. He's trying to reconcile with his brother. 
And now it looks like him and his entire family are going to get wiped out. Jacob's terrified. He has this kind of long night, dark night of the soul by himself. And yet, in, in all of this, he's shown more character, more, more maturity than he's ever shown so far. Think of that prayer. And yet, on top of all of the stress he must be facing, all of the exhaustion, God has chosen this time to have a fight with him. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? In the prayer, Jacob is concerned that Esau is going to come and attack him. The truth is, God is going to come and attack him. And here's a lesson for all of us as God's people. There are going to be times in life where it feels like the Lord is opposing you and not helping you. There are going to be times where it feels like he is more of an enemy toward you than a friend. When you look at your circumstances, when you look at what you have to face, the hardships that are coming your way, And it's difficult because we struggle through life, don't we, as Christians? We do our best to be godly. We try and obey God, however however falteringly we do it. We, we, We say our prayers, we read the Bible, we do our best. And we still get battered. And it's the compound effect, isn't it? It's it's when it's one thing on top of another. You know, you're already struggling with your mental health and then you have some physical illness that you have to deal with as well or the illness of somebody else who you love. You're already finding home life impossible and then work life becomes impossible as well. You're barely keeping your head above water financially and then you also experience a broken relationship. One thing after another, after another, after another. It's enough to break us. And we have to make sense of that as Christians. We've got to deal with the fact that we know that God's in control, and so he permits this stuff to happen to us. It's hard to make sense. You know, some of us here may not be Christians, and when we look at the difficulties in our life, we may think, well, I don't know if God does exist, but if he does, he doesn't seem to like me that much. And the truth is, I think there's probably a few Christians who feel the same way. But we will all wrestle with God. It's just his way of doing things. The question then is why? So secondly, why God wrestles with us? There's lots of mystery in these verses. There's lots of things that we can't quite figure out what's going on. So we're told that they wrestle until daybreak. I mean, this must have taken hours. An arduous fight for Jacob, a test of strength. We're told in verse 25 that the man cannot kind of overpower Jacob in the fight. So Jacob seems to be holding his own. And yet, then, straight afterwards, this man touches Jacob on the socket of his hip, and then it's wrenched out of joint instantly, and Jacob goes down. And the word touch there, it is a light touch. There is, this man is so powerful, he's, he's just able to touch as if a feather touch on Jacob's leg and it comes out of joint, he's, he's done in. And if he can do that, he must be very powerful. And so Jacob, he's flawed. And then the man says this strange thing. Did you notice this? Let me go, for it is daybreak. 
So the fight has gone on all through the night and, and they see the glimmer of light in the skies as the sun is beginning to rise and the man wants to leave. Why is that? Top hint, it's not because he's a vampire, in case you're wondering. Why is it? Well, remember, in some mysterious way, Jacob is fighting with God. And there is a principle in the Bible about God and how we face him. God said to Moses later in the book of Exodus, no one can see God and live. No one can see God and live. So the night has provided some level of cover, some, some shielding of, of God, something of his glory and holiness is being able to be veiled by night. But the night is going soon. So it's not for the man's sake that he needs to go away at daybreak. It's for Jacob's sake. It's not safe. But Jacob, I mean, he literally doesn't know when to let go, does he? I will not let you go until you bless me, he says, holding on to this man. And that's interesting, isn't it? Why would Jacob think this guy should bless him? I mean, he's just started a fight with him. But Jacob must have grasped something about who he is. He must have done something of his power. He must have grasped that this man is, is more... He's greater than him, more powerful. He can give favor that would be needed. And Jacob, you know, he's a bit of a mess. He's, he's absolutely mentally and physically exhausted. He's been fighting all night. He's had his hip put out of joint. He's basically half on the floor, but he's grabbing onto this man and he will not let go. Bless me, he says. Bless me. The book of Hosea picks up on this episode um, later on, the verse will, will be on the screen. And there's an interesting note where it says, um, just at that bottom line there, that Jacob wept and begged for his favor. So Jacob is clinging on for dear life, but it's not because of some sense of entitlement, like, give me the blessing, I deserve this. He's in tears. He's a broken man. In absolute desperation, he's saying, please bless me. It's as if he's got nothing left to do but ask this man for his favor. And this is the key to understanding why God has done this to Jacob, I think. You know, all his life, Jacob has relied on his instincts, on his gifts, on his cunning to get what he wants, to get him out of trouble. It's the story of his life, exploiting his brother, tricking his father. When troubles come, he gets planning and then he can sort himself out in some way. And you see that even in the passage. He's able to kind of come up with plans, come up with ideas to fix things. And it's not that plans are wrong. It's not necessarily that he's unwise. But it does seem that even as Jacob has grown, even as he's maturing, there are aspects of his heart that, that still need addressing. There's still some self-sufficiency going on. And God wants to change that. And the thing is, in wrestling with God, the option of helping yourself is kind of over, isn't it? Jacob's been brought to the end. He's exhausted. He's afraid of his life. And now he's also severely weakened. If Esau comes the next day and wants to come after Jacob, Jacob can't even run away. He's limping, an absolute picture of weakness. But this is why the Lord wrestled with Jacob. Jacob needed to be humbled. 
He needed to see that he's not self-sufficient, that he's not his own savior, that ultimately he's utterly dependent on God for his blessing. And that is why God wrestles with us. We need to see that we are not self-sufficient. It's not that God likes to inflict pain on us. He's not sadistic. But it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we realize the truth, that we can't depend on ourselves. We need the Lord. And this is a lesson that we need to keep learning however far through the Christian life we are. You know, we can say the right prayers. We can do many of the right things. And you know what? We can do them even with semi-pure motives. It's amazing. And that was the same with Jacob. I don't think his prayer was cynical. But deep down, there will always remain pride that needs to get looked at by the Lord. There's always still something in us that makes us think that we can control our own world with our own gifts, with our own talents. We tell ourselves that our intelligence will help us get us through life. If we just think about things a little bit more, if we, if we learn a little bit more, then, then we can ensure our own success. We may think our own organizational skills will help us. If I just get my schedule sorted, manage my time perfectly, then I'll be in control, then I'll see success. We may think that our ability to influence others and our relationships will help us control things. And the truth is, when when we talk and our society talks about us trying to be our best selves, this is often what we're aiming for, a greater sense of mastery over our own lives. But here's the thing. It's a delusion. I can't even control whether I've got a car parking space when I'm going somewhere. I cannot control my own world, ultimately. I'm dependent on the Lord. We all are. We're creatures. We're finite. We're completely dependent on God's kindness to us. And if we think that we can control our own worlds, there is a pride that will raise up in us, that will harm ourselves, it will harden our hearts, and it will also harm others. And here's the thing, the Lord is not going to let you live that lie. He loves you too much to leave you in a delusion. And so what he does is he stages an intervention. He has to do something dramatic. He puts things in our lives that threaten to break us. They make us feel utterly helpless. Why? Because we won't listen otherwise. We won't listen. You know, it's really hard to be told, simply told deep truths about ourselves that will then make us change. We have to be shown. It's been said elsewhere, you know, if, someone, if someone's spoilt, if you've got a spoilt child, how much good does it do simply to tell them that they are spoiled? Will that fix them? You know what your problem is? You're a spoiled brat. Oh, yeah. If only someone had said earlier, now I will change my life. It doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. We can't simply be told. We need to be shown. Something dramatic has to happen. And this is why God puts things in our lives to change us so that we will learn. And yes, that means it will look like at times that God is your enemy, that he's opposing you, but he's not. He's not. Parents in the room, I wonder how many of you 
have children who sometimes think that you're their worst enemy. Sometimes you have to do things that they find hard and they don't understand. It confuses them. Why is mummy giving me vegetables on my plate? And you do these things not because you don't love them, but because you do love them. And it's good for them. And it's the same with the Lord. He's a surgeon. He will cut us, but not cut us to inflict pain. Cut us so that we will be made well. There's pride in our hearts like a tumor, and it needs to be extracted out. And he will do what is necessary so that we will grow. That's how it works. So God wrestles with us not to harm us, but so that we'll grow. Well, finally then, if we have to wrestle with God, how do we win? Let's pick up the story again. So Jacob is on the, half on the floor, leg dislocated, holding on to this mysterious man. And the man speaks. It says, verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he says. And the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Something profound is happening here. The man isn't just asking Jacob's name because he wants to know whose hip he's just put out of joint. He knows exactly who he is. But names in the Old Testament, in the Bible, carry significance and weight. They say something about your character. They say something about your destiny. And so when the man asks Jacob for his name and he says, Jacob, it's a confession. Jacob means deceiver. And that has characterized much of Jacob's life to this point. He's been a deceiver. But the man changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means that he has struggled with God and has overcome. Interestingly, Jacob tries to ask the man's name, and he gets instantly shut down. Did you see that? Why do you ask my name? The man says. And it's as if the the man needs to maintains some level of mystery about himself. Perhaps if his name is told, then it might be abused or taken for granted. Another suggestion, what one scholar suggested, that you could paraphrase what the man says here is this. Jacob, don't you realize who I am? And then the man blesses Jacob. And Jacob names the place where he is, Peniel, And it turns out he does know who the man is. Verse 30, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And at this point, something key in Jacob's identity has changed. He emerges from this wrestling match, a new man. Verse 31, after the long night, the sun rises. He moves across the Jabbok River on to face Esau the next day with a limp. But he's changed a new person. And so how did Jacob win? How did Jacob win? Can you even say that you could win against God in a wrestling match? It kind of seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? And Jacob certainly didn't win physically, did he? He was pummeled by the end. But he won by doing this. He kept holding on to the Lord 
even when he was humbled. Look at verse 26 again. The man says, let me go for it is daybreak. It's unsafe for Jacob. And Jacob must understand this. And yet he refuses. No, bless me. He keeps his grip on the man. And this is kind of crazy, isn't it? Jacob's putting himself at risk. Surely he should be kind of hobbling off as quick as he can before he sees this supernatural person's face in the light. He might die. And yet he maintains his iron grip on the man because seemingly it's better for him to die than to leave without his blessing. And Jacob has come to learn that more than anything else in his life, what he needs is God himself and his blessing. That's what he needs. Nothing else will do. He has no hope apart from the Lord, and so he will not let go. He begs for blessing. You know, that... I won't let you go until you bless me. Has Jacob ever uttered a more heartfelt prayer in his entire life? White knuckled, grabbing onto this man, begging him for his help. He needed the Lord and he wasn't going to let him go. And this is how he wins. John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar, he put it like this As always, with God, one has to lose in order to win. One has to lose in order to win. So we win by losing. We come to the end of ourselves. We realize we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot control our world. And instead, we keep hold of God by continuing to pray, continuing to struggle with him, by believing that only he can help us, by seeing that ultimately, though the skies might fall, What we need most is him and his help. And so as you're humbled, as you go through another season of hardship, whatever that looks like for you, as you come to realize again that you don't have the resources to control your world, keep holding on to the Lord Jesus. Keep praying, Lord, I renounce my self-sufficiency. Please save me from my pride. Reveal yourself to me again. Bless me as Jacob prayed all those years ago. This is how we win. Now, I recently started climbing. I started going bouldering, which apparently like half the church does, and I didn't know, so I'm kind of you know, new to the party. And um, it's fun. I mean, I'm a beginner. I guess it's climbing center in, in Trafford. And I'm finding myself kind of building up my strength. I've got little calluses developing on my hands. Um, but I'm finding that easily my fingers lose strength as I'm trying to kind of scale a wall. They just kind of turn to jelly after a while. Um, and I don't have the strength to physically hold on. And this has happened a few times. Sometimes when I've been quite high up the wall and it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> and I'm kind of looking for a way to let myself down. Or there've even been a, There's even been a time where I've just kind of let go and fallen to the floor. Um, my grip is not always particularly strong. And maybe that feels where you are at spiritually. It's all well and good holding on, but grip isn't particularly strong. What do we do about that? Because our prayer lives sometimes seem weak, don't they? Sometimes we're discouraged. 
Sometimes we don't feel like we're growing in the heat of it all. Sometimes we fear that we will lose hold entirely. Well, it's interesting. Over church history, there's been a significant kind of strain of thought which has held that this man who is wrestling Jacob is not just God in general, um, but the Son of God, that it's Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. He's wrestling with Jacob. This would be a kind of appearance before the incarnation, thousands of years later. And if that's true, and I think there are good reasons to think that's true, it's interesting to note that the one who starts a fight with Jacob, who starts wrestling with Jacob, would himself have to wrestle with God in his own life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had to wrestle with his father in prayer. Just like with Jacob, it happened in the gloom of night, just before um, a day of trial. And Jesus is in agony. He prays, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. He's shuddering at the thought of having to bear the wrath of God in our place on the cross. But the cup wasn't taken from Jesus. And Jesus left that garden, not with a blessing that evening, but with a guarantee of curse that he would bear on the tree for our sins. And why? Why would he leave with a curse? Well, he chose to because it was only that way that we would be saved. He bore the curse on our place for us in order to save us. Jesus died and rose again so that he might lift us up out of our darkness and all of our sins and to bring us into his glorious kingdom. In other words, Jesus puts his grip on us long before we put our grip on Jesus. A couple of verses um, up on the screen. One is Jesus' own words in John 10. He says this of his people. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is not going to lose his grip on us. That's good news, isn't it? When we feel weak. And this is the assurance and the motivation for the Christian life that we need. The Apostle Paul said it like this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What happens first? The Lord Jesus takes hold of us. He is holding on to us. And when we know that, that will help us and motivate us to keep hold of him when we go through the trials of life. We're not holding on to someone who feels apathetic about us or who doesn't care. He has done everything to ensure that we will stay in his hand because he loves us and cares for us. Knowing that will help us hold on. Knowing that will give us strength for whatever we have to face in the coming days. So hold on to Jesus. And I should probably say, you know, if, if you're in this room and you're hearing all of this and you've not chosen to follow Jesus and receive him for yourself, maybe you sense that he's wrestling with you. Maybe you're going through a trial difficulty and maybe you're wondering what is all of this about and what is God trying to say to me 
Or maybe he's encouraging you to let go of your self-sufficiency. He's calling on you, as he does with all of us, to renounce pride, to let go of whatever we think will control our worlds, and just come and take hold of Jesus. That's what the Lord is saying to all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes we think of you as our enemy. We face difficulties in our lives and hardships and we don't understand why. We don't know why they come at us. We feel like we're doing our best and yet it's still hard. And yet, Lord, we still think ill thoughts of you. We think that you are there to oppose us when actually you love us. Lord, give us humility. Help us to renounce our pride. Help us to see the Lord Jesus as the only one in whom we can take refuge and find strength. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us the eyes to see you in your glory, in your greatness, and help us to keep hold. And Lord God, even as we say that, we praise you that you have taken hold of us. It's not all our initiative, it's yours. And for those of us who feel under a heavy burden, may that be strength for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.